Amen. We are continuing going book by book through the Bible. This week we're in the book of Nehemiah. And a big emphasis of this book is on this idea of returning to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. Having walls around the city in the ancient world was crucial. Uh, When we visited Greece recently, you, you, you can tell which cities were the old cities because they still have the wall around them. You can still see the the ancient wall. And the same is true with Jerusalem. When David took the city around 1000 B.C., there would have been walls, and he he strengthened them and expanded them. And his son Solomon expanded them a little more. And Hezekiah, another great king in the south, came and expanded them even more. When Babylon came and conquered Jerusalem in 586, uh, these walls, you know, were, were, were destroyed... Uh, the gates were destroyed. And so now, in 445 B.C., Hezekiah returns to Jerusalem, and one of his goals is to, to restore, rebuild, fortify the city. And uh, the, the walls continue to this day. In fact, this picture here is a picture that I took uh, in Jerusalem several years ago. Look, it's looking toward the Temple Mount, looking from the east, and there's still walls today. They're not all original, of course, uh, but you can see where the walls have been, and, and some of it is original. But this morning we're going to talk about the story of the walls, but of course the story is not just about the walls, and uh, it's never just about the walls, right? We're going to talk about the story behind the wall as well. So if you would, please turn in your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 1. If you are able, please stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. I'm going to read Nehemiah 1, verses 3 through 11, and this is the very inspired Word of God. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. Let's pray. Father, I want to pray the same prayer that Nehemiah prays here. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Many people believe the author of Nehemiah is the same author as as Ezra. A lot of commonalities between the two books. Uh, They both take place during the same time period. 
And uh, so we're going to follow a very similar pattern this week that we followed last week when we looked at Ezra. And the first theme that I want to highlight is this, this, the fact that God is faithful to His people. The book begins with Nehemiah in Persia. He's serving in an important role just under the king. The Persian king is Artaxerxes. And so Nehemiah is a Jewish man, but he's in Babylon and in this Persian, under this Persian rule, but God has raised him up and placed him in this important role for a very strategic uh, reason and purpose. And he receives word in verse 3 that Jerusalem is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. And immediately he mourns and it says he repents. Why does he repent? Because he knows it's a spiritual issue. This is an issue of repentance. This is an issue of sin. And I like the way that Tom Schreiner describes this. He says, Israel's primary problem was not the opposition of its enemies. Rather, it was their own lack of devotion and commitment to Yahweh, for they were called to live under His rule. So Nehemiah repents of his own sin. He repents on behalf of Israel. And he appeals to God in this promise in verse 9 here. He says, you said, if your people will return to you, you will heal them, you will restore them in the land. So Nehemiah says, I want to lead that. I want to lead God's people to return to you and be restored in the land. And so he appeals to the king who's over him, Artaxerxes. And and look at chapter 2, verse 8. He says, and the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. So just like we saw last week, God is in control. He's sovereign. He can change the heart of a pagan king. And here he works again and allows Nehemiah to return to Jerusalem to rebuild. This would be about 13 years after Ezra returned to Jerusalem. And he's, he's going to go and, and lead God's people to rebuild. But of course, he's going to face opposition. God's people always face opposition when they do what God calls them to do. And look at chapter 2, verse 20. Look at how he responds to the opposition. He says, The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we His servants will arise and build. So he says, we're not going to stop in the midst of the opposition. God is with us, and He will do this. And of course, the opposition continues. And that's a big part of the story is the opposition, the back and forth. And there's a lot of drama with it. And notice chapter 4, verse 9. He says, We prayed to our God and set a guard as a protection against them day and night. So I want you to notice they pray, and prayer is a big theme in the book of Nehemiah, a lot of prayer. They pray, but they also take action. They go build the wall, and they guard it. They defend it. And so it's not sort of this either or, and I think it's a good principle for us. We're called to pray, and we're called to do, to act to prepare. And it's not an either or. You know, some people just pray. It's like, well, God will do what He will do. Yeah, but He uses His people to do what He's going to do. Right? So we pray and we act and we see them doing this. Now, they're going to finish the project. It's only going to take 52 days to restore the, the gates and the, 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 the walls. And then they have a service. And we'll talk about that service that they have here in a few moments. But for now, I want you to look at Nehemiah chapter 9 where we have this summary where God's people summarize how God has been faithful to them 
throughout the years. It's a recounting of the story. So if you need a kind of the big picture reminder, Cliff Notes version of the big story, Nehemiah 9 is the place to go. But look toward the end, Nehemiah 9, verses 30 and 31. It's a really nice summary of just this recent development under during this time. Many years you bore with them, you God bore with God's people and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Look at verse 33. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. He says, we're the ones who've been wicked. We're the ones who brought this on ourselves. We're the ones who've been unfaithful. But you, God, have been faithful all along. You've been faithful even when we've not been. And one of the, the examples of faithfulness that, that I see in our day today that really I think is a good illustration of God's faithfulness, and when I see a husband and wife who make a commitment to love each other till death do us part, and toward the end, and oftentimes one of them will get sick. And, and I've seen this, I've seen this here at Vista. And, 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 by, and, and, and one of the types of sickness that's the hardest to watch and the hardest to experience is a sickness where the person, their mind is impacted. Maybe it's dementia, maybe it's Alzheimer's, but one of the, the husband or wife doesn't even know his spouse anymore and can't you know, reciprocate. It can't say, I love you too, and, and thank you. And when, when the healthy spouse continues to love till death do his part and continues to sacrifice and give to the end, even when she's not responding and she doesn't even know who you are, she doesn't even know your name. And you love her to the end. It's a powerful demonstration of, uh, of sacrificial love. And, and I would say it's more powerful demonstration of love than a lot of the Hollywood versions of love. It's till death do us part. And, uh, and it's incredible. And I've seen it. And I've seen it among some of you. And it's powerful. And, and I think it's a, a glimpse into the faithfulness of God toward His people, though they are unfaithful to Him. And we can look back and we can see the story and we just scratch our head and say, how could they be so foolish? Just repeating error after again and again. And yet we see the hand of God and the faithfulness of God and He's faithful to them over and over and over. And we're meant to look back and just say, wow. And we stand at a vantage point in history where we can look back and see God's faithfulness to His people in sending His Son. And the Bible says, while we were still sinners... Christ died for us. So that's a good reminder to us. When, when did God love us in Christ? He loved us in Christ while we were dead in our sins, while we were enemies of Him, while we were rebels against the King, while we were still sinners, while we were unfaithful and unlovable and didn't reciprocate and say thank you. God loved us and gave His one and only Son. We all have this longing to be loved. We all have this longing. We want someone to be faithful to us. Right? And our songs talk about this. Just listen to, you, to our songs we listen to on the radio. They're all talking about this desire to be loved. And the one that happened to come to my mind as I was working on this was a song from the 80s. I want to know what love is. Right? <laughs> In my life, there's been heartache and pain. I don't know if I can face it again. But I want to know what love is. Right? 
There's this longing, this desire. I want to know it. I want to feel it. I want to be loved. We all have it. It's universal. Everybody wants to be loved. Everybody wants someone to be faithful to them. And, And perhaps some of you are here this morning with scars, maybe emotional scars, because you haven't been loved the way you deserve to be. You haven't been treated the way you ought to be. I just want to encourage you this morning from God's Word. There is one who is faithful even when others are not. And there's one who is faithful even when you are not. Isn't that good news? Even when you're unfaithful, He is faithful to you. And Nehemiah is highlighting the faithfulness of God toward His people even when they are unfaithful. He doesn't forsake them. He remembers them. He's faithful to them. And therefore, God's people respond to God's faithfulness by being faithful. And I want to point out a couple of ways we see in the book of Nehemiah God's people responding with faithfulness because God has been faithful. Talk about what this means for us. First of all, God's people are faithful to His Word. The first thing that happens after the walls are rebuilt, the whole community gathers together in Jerusalem within the walls for the reading of God's Word. This happens in Nehemiah chapter 8. Great story. Let me just read verses 1 through 4 and then draw out a few principles for us. Nehemiah 8, beginning in verse 1. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate, and they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard, on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law, and Ezra the scribe stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. Notice in verse 1 it says, All the people gathered. In verse 2 it says, all who could understand what they heard. So they gathered for what purpose? To hear God's Word. To hear it read. And one principle I think we can draw out here and learn from and be reminded of is the importance of God's people gathering as one body, one people, in order to come under God's Word and hear God's Word. And at our church we value this. A, A worship service for all. We don't have a worship service for senior adults and another worship service for young adults and another worship service for youth and another worship service for students, for kids. It's, it's, it's one worship service for all, young to old. We're all gathered together as one body and there's something powerful about that. And, and now we understand that, you know, sometimes younger kids have to learn the discipline of sitting in a worship service and families do this differently and, and that's fine. We, we're sensitive to that, understand that. And, and by the way, when there are young kids in here and they are fidgety, that's not a problem. We welcome that. That's a part. That's glorious, just the fact that they're in here. Uh, now, when you have adults who are getting all fidgety, that's a different deal. <laughs> we welcome fidgety kids. So, right. Notice in verse 5, it says, Ezra opened the book. It's so important. Principle number one, open the book. Right? Unfortunately, there are churches today that aren't opening the book. What are you doing? This is, this is what you do. You open the book. So step one, open the book. It's a good principle for your Sunday school class and your Bible study. you got to open the book. Right? If you're not opening the book, what are you doing? Open the book. And then verse 3, it says, he read from it. you got to read it. Right? There's a reading of God's Word that's central and important. 
And I want you to notice in verse 3, it says, all the ears of the people were attentive. There's a responsibility on the part of the listeners, the congregation, to listen. And I want to say thank you. You are a very attentive congregation, and it's very encouraging to be a person who speaks regularly and to look out and to tell, you know, well, they're, they're listening, they're attentive. It's very encouraging. It's, it's challenging to speak when you can tell people aren't listening. It's challenging to speak when people are sort of getting up and leaving and coming back and getting up. Because I know that there's other people around you are also being distracted. I see it. I see them looking at you. And then they wonder. And then they say something. And I see it all. And I'm not complaining. I'm just saying it's very encouraging when God's people are attentive to God's Word. And it's very encouraging as a speaker. So thank you for being a congregation that's so attentive to the hearing of God's Word. Look at verses 7 and 8. 7b, toward the end of verse 7. The Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So there were some who helped the people to understand. So Ezra's reading... And it's a big group, and he doesn't have a sound system. And imagine if you're like at the back of the crowd, you may not hear. And so there are certain people, designated Levites, qualified men, who are responsible for going around to various groups and further reading and further explaining what was just read. Now, these people are not going around giving little devotionals. These people are not going around saying, let me tell you what it means to me. Or let me tell you how I apply this. That's not the point. The point is, all the people need to hear and understand God's Word. So in verse 8, it says they read it clearly. There's a footnote in my Bible that says, perhaps this means with interpretation. They read it with interpretation. They interpreted it. This is what it means. The NIV, I think, says it well. Making it clear and giving the meaning so that the people could understand what was being read. The goal, number one, is for people to understand what it says and what it means. I I did my doctoral uh, work in expository preaching, and my writing project, uh, I focused on expository preaching and used this text as one of my texts to kind of explain or defend the practice of expository preaching. There's a lot we can learn here. Step one, open the Bible. Step two, read the Bible. Step three, explain it. This is what it says. This is what it means. It's priority number one is that God's people understand what it says. Priority number one is not get them to agree with it. At some level, that's down the road. right? Priority number one is not get them to understand what difference it makes in their lives. That's important. But that's downstream. Number one, this is what it says. This is what it means. This is God's Word. Do you understand it? Regardless if you like it, agree with it, know how to apply it or not, Do you understand what was happening? This is priority number one of Christian preaching. And so Nehemiah returns in order to rebuild. Why? So that God's people can gather for hearing God's Word. That's the goal. That's the purpose, to come under God's Word. Now, if you were here last week, you might say, wait a minute. Last week, you made it sound like they returned for the purpose of worship. And when you, when you preach from Ezra, you said the whole purpose was worship. And now you're pre- preaching from Nehemiah, and you're saying the whole purpose was about God's Word. Which one is it? I said, yes. Thank you. The answer is yes. 
It's both. There's not a, there's not a, there's not a, a separation to be made between Christian worship, biblical godly worship, and God's Word. Right? If, if we're truly worshiping, true worship is centered around God's Word. That's why preaching is central to the act of worship. Hear God's Word and respond. And the songs we sing are biblical. We want to make sure it's quality, biblical content. So our worship is based on God's Word. And here's another point. When God's people truly come under His Word, guess what they do? They worship. God uses His Word in order to, 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 to motivate His people to worship Him. There's no worship apart from worship that's based on the Word of God. The Word is crucial. The Word is powerful. I think it's helpful to think about how powerful words are just in everyday life. If I have a neighbor and I see him or her, you know, most days as I go to the mailbox and we wave at each other, but we never really talk. We never exchange words. I just see him. How you doing? Know where he lives. Good to see you. If you were to say to me, do you know him? I'd say, no, I don't. You know, he seems like a nice guy. I know where he lives. I know how often he checks his mail. <laughs> but I don't know him. Why? I've never talked to him. Now, if, on the other hand, I, I, I stopped and visited with him fairly frequently, and you were to say to me, do you, do you know Mike? Do you know him? I'd say, yes, I do know him. What's the difference? I've talked with him. I've spoken with him. We've gotten to know each other. We've revealed stuff about each other. There's a revelation there that's necessary. And so because we've spoken, we can know each other. And by the way, if, if, I, if I hadn't talked to someone in 20 years and you said to me, do you know him? I'd probably say to you, yes, but I haven't talked to him in a long time. Now, why is that necessary to add that? Yes, but. Yes, but I haven't talked to him. Because talking and communicating with words is crucial for knowing someone. And if I've gone 20 years without talking to a person, there's one sense in which I really don't know them. Right? Now, here's the point. To the, to the extent that we are interacting with God's Word is the extent that we are coming to know Him, and it's the extent that we are able to worship Him. It's hypothetically possible to just kind of wave at God like you might your neighbor you never talked to. You know, you're not anti-God. You're friendly toward God. You're glad He's there. How you doing? Right? But you don't talk to Him. You don't hear from Him. You don't, you don't have an exchange of words. You're not hearing His Word. Therefore, you don't really know Him. You can say, oh yeah, yeah, He lives right down the street. How you doing? Seems like a nice guy. But you don't know Him. To the extent that you interact with His words is the extent to which you know Him. And that's the extent to which you're able to, therefore, worship Him. And by the way, if you hadn't interacted with His words in like 20 years, well, yes, but. Yes, I, I knew Him one point, but it's been a really long time. So I'm really not sure what's going on there. Right? And so the incredible good news is God has spoken. He's spoken. He's given us His words. We have them. There are quite a few of them. We have the incredible privilege to interact with them and thereby get to know Him and worship Him. Our mission statement at our church is making disciples who worship, connect, serve, and impact. And so I always like to say our, our worship, we want it to be God-centered. We want it to be Word-centered. So preaching is central to the act of worship. So our worship is word-centered. And, and it's also important to, to say we want our connecting to be word-centered. We don't, just, 
We don't just come around God's Word and worship, and then when we leave here, go connect around hobbies. When we leave here, we go and connect around, in smaller groups, God's Word, and continue to explain and apply, and maybe in a more personal way, because we're, we're a smaller group, so we're able to do that. And it kind of follows the pattern and the example of, of Nehemiah. They met in a large group, and then it seems like there are smaller groups that are further coming further under God's Word. I think that's a, that's a pattern. There's an example for us to follow. And I, I hope that our small groups, whether that's Sunday school or men's ministry or women's ministry or what, the various Bible studies we have, I mean, I hope this is, the, this is the philosophy. This is what we're doing. This is the pattern. We're coming together around God's Word, continuing to open it up and read it and apply it. And maybe we're able to apply it in a little more personal and practical ways because we're sitting down talking to each other. And then we can come back and, and pray for each other around those things. And then we can follow up with each other the next week or two. Hey, remember how we talked about this last week? How'd that go for you? How are you doing in that area? Remember how you asked for prayer in that? How's that going? And that's what, that's what, a, that's what a biblical model of worshiping and connecting looks like. It's word-centered. So God's people are faithful to His Word. And so I hope you're making it a priority to worship with us. We're going to continue to do our best to try to make it Word-centered worship. And I hope you take the next step and get connected at Vista Grande in a smaller group that hopefully is connected around God's Word. And at our church, we prioritize Sunday school, so that'd be the first place I'd recommend. But there are other opportunities as well. Men's ministry, starting uh, Revitalize soon. Women's ministry, Lots of different options, uh, student ministry, children's ministry, lots of things going on. I just encourage you, take the next step, get connected somewhere, and uh, that's a part of discipleship. God's people are faithful to His Word. And this brings us to talk thirdly about the fact that God's people are changed by His Word. When we come under God's Word, it changes us. Something happens, necessarily. In Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 9, the, the way it changes the people is they start weeping. They start crying, I think, because they realize they've failed. And Nehemiah and Ezra have to come along and encourage them and say, no, no, this isn't meant to be just painful. It's meant to lead you to Christ and be you know, life-giving. And it's meant to be joyful. Uh, you know, I think coming under God's Word is perhaps like coming, going to surgery. When you go to surgery, it, it, there's a cutting that's involved. And there's a certain pain that's associated with that. Sometimes there's a removal of something not good, and that's painful and not fun. And we say, I wish I didn't have to go through that. Yeah, rightly so. But you know on the other side of it, the goal is, is life and health and, 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 and feeling well and being able to enjoy life. And similarly, when you come under God's Word, there is a, a surgery-type aspect that can be painful at times. It can step on your toes at times. But it's not meant to be painful. It's, that's not the goal. The goal is not to stay there. The goal is to let it push you to Christ where you find forgiveness and motivation to go and sin no more. And it's good and it's life-giving. And so when Nehemiah returns, he starts applying God's Word to various situations that just naturally come up. And there are areas that need to be corrected and changed. And so he applies God's Word to it. In chapter 5, he applies God's Word to the situation, the issue of uh, the wealthy oppressing the poor. And he says, this isn't right. And he addresses it. And they, they respond faithfully. In chapter 10, he addresses the issue of supporting, bringing financial support, tithing to the temple and the priesthood. 
And they respond. In chapter 13, he addresses this issue of the Sabbath, honoring the Sabbath. And they respond. And I want us to focus on one particular issue in chapter 13. It's how the book ends. So I think it's a significant one. I want us to focus on this issue where Nehemiah is calling God's people in chapter 13 to be holy, to be set apart, to be pure. So in chapter 13, verse 1, they read from God's Word, and in God's Word it says there's supposed to be no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. And then look at verse 3. They respond, as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. So they removed the Ammonites and the Moabites in an attempt to purify, cleanse the temple. In chapter 13, verses 4 to 7, the priest has given a room of the temple to his brother-in-law or one of his relatives named Tobiah. Tobiah is an Ammonite. An Ammonite is not supposed to be in the temple, much less living in the temple. So what does Nehemiah do? Look at Nehemiah chapter 13, verse 8. I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they cleansed the chamber. So picture Nehemiah throwing furniture out the front door of the temple and saying, we got to purify the temple. This guy can't live here. I don't care if he is your brother-in-law. Cleanse the temple. In chapter 13, verses 25 to 27, he calls out the people. He says, you guys are following the pattern of Solomon. Solomon married many foreign women who had foreign gods. And those foreign gods led Solomon astray. And he says, you guys are doing the same thing. You're marrying women with foreign gods. And look at what he says. Look at verse 25. And I confronted them, and I cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. So I just want to go on record and say, I would suggest you not follow the example of Nehemiah here. Don't go around cursing people. Don't go around beating people. Don't go around pulling people's hair. This is descriptive. It's describing what he did. It's not prescriptive telling us what we're supposed to do in this situation. Look at verse 30. I think we have a nice summary sentence here. Thus I cleansed the temple. I'm sorry. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign. Now, we talked about this issue last week when we looked at the book of Ezra. And we said this seems difficult at first. It seems very politically incorrect at first because it sounds like a racial thing. It sounds at first like they're saying, if you're a part of the Jewish race, you're in. If you're not a part of the Jewish race, you're out. And it's all based on racial lines or ethnic lines. And I made the argument last week, and I'm going to make the argument again this week. I don't think it's primarily an ethnic or racial issue. I think it's more of a religious issue. It's a spiritual issue. It's about spiritual purity, not racial purity. Now you say, why do you say that? Let me give you several reasons why I say that. First of all, there are examples in the Bible of people who are foreigners who get grafted in and become a part of the people of God, and they're very much commended for that. Ruth, for example, is a Moabite. She's a Moabite. The very people they're saying throw out of the temple, she's a Moabite who becomes a part of the people of God in the lineage of Jesus Christ, and she's very much commended for her faith. So there's exhibit A. Of course, Rahab is another example. Another reason why I think this is more about religious purity 
and not about racial purity is because of other passages in the Bible, including other passages in the Old Testament. Let me give you one example. Isaiah chapter 56, verses 6 and 7. Listen to this. And the foreigners who join themselves to the Lord, these I will bring to my holy mountain, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all peoples. Isaiah is referring to foreigners who become a part of the people of God, who get brought to God's holy mountain. What does that mean? That's the temple. And, and the temple is supposed to be a house of prayer for whom? For all the nations, all the peoples. So I think Jeremiah, I'm sorry, Nehemiah, is, is, is his issue he's concerned with is the spiritual purity of Israel, of the temple. I think Isaiah is also concerned about spiritual purity, but he also is concerned with we've got to be spiritually pure so that we can accomplish the mission. We can reach the nations. We can be a blessing to all the nations. And I think there's a principle here for us as a church today. One way we might apply this is, is the fact that we value what is called regenerate church membership, which is a fancy phrase that means we want members of our church to be Christians. And so if you're going to join our church, we have a conversation with you. And we say, are you trusting in Christ for your salvation? Are you a, are you a believer? Do you believe in Christ? Are you trusting in Christ? Is that something that, that has happened in your life? And if a person says no, we say, we're really glad you're here. Let's keep having the conversation. But we require a person to be a Christian in order to become a member of the church. Why? Because we want the church to be pure. Now, now the world will hear that and they say, well, that's so exclusive. You're going to exclude people from your membership because they don't believe exactly like you do. Right? It sounds so exclusive. You're not going to allow people to join the church. And, and, and the answer, yeah, we can't. I mean, because our, who, who are our church members? Our church members are the people who vote. And in our church, you vote. You have an influence. You're influencing the direction of our church. Church members are the ones who, who become leaders and teach classes and teach Bible studies. So it is essential that we have as pure of a church as we can have. In other words, that, that as to the best of our ability, we make sure that people who are members of our church are Christians. So is there an exclusive element to it? Yes. But why? Why do, why do we prioritize this? Why is this important? We want to be spiritually pure so that we can accomplish our mission. And what is our mission? To see as many people as possible come to Christ and become a part of us. So we want to be pure so we can accomplish the mission. We, we're exclusive in order to be as inclusive as we can possibly be. Right? We want to be pure so that we can accomplish it. If we're not pure, we're not going to accomplish our mission. And that's what Nehemiah is calling God's people out for. They're not pure, and therefore they're not going to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. They need to be pure in order to accomplish the mission. Listen to how 1 Peter says it. 1 Peter 2, verses 9 to 10. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Once you were not a people. Let's remind ourselves who we are in the story of Nehemiah. We are the foreigner. We are the outsider. We're the ones who get tossed out of the temple because we've been living in the temple, and in order to purify it, they got to kick us out. That's who we are in the story. But we don't stay there. We don't remain there. God brings us in. 
How does he do that? Let's remind ourselves how we get brought in. About 500 years after this, God sends his son and Jesus walks within these very walls and he walks through these very gates and he walks inside this very temple and Jesus himself is going to cleanse the temple. Kind of following the pattern of Nehemiah, turning some furniture over. And he purifies the temple. Why? Because they're not accomplishing the mission. He quotes Isaiah 56, my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. He's concerned that, that God's people that the temple be pure. Why? So that God's people can accomplish the mission. See, God's people are not accomplishing the mission. That's the problem. There's so many places where it's so close and you think it's about to happen, where the sin gets removed and God dwells with them and they're a blessing to all the nations. And it's so many places. It's about to happen. Under Solomon, it's about to happen. And it just, as you've seen, as we know, it fails. But even in our failure and even in the unfaithfulness of God's people, God remains faithful. And He sends His one and only Son, and Jesus is faithful all the way to the end. Jesus is the true Israel who is faithful all the way to the end so that He can become the blessing to all nations of the earth. All nations of the earth get blessed. All peoples of the earth get blessed. Why? Because of what Jesus does. And let's remind ourselves how He becomes the blessing. How does Jesus become the blessing? This is incredible. We're the ones who are on the outside, deserve to be treated like outsiders. Jesus is the only person on the inside, really. The only true, pure, faithful person who's faithful to God all the way to the end. And yet, how does he get treated? He gets taken outside the city wall. He gets taken outside the camp, Hebrews 13, 13. He gets treated like the outsider. He gets treated like the foreigner. He gets tossed from the temple. He gets treated like he's the one who's impure. God made him who had no sin to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was willing to be taken outside the camp, outside the city, crucified, treated as a criminal, treated as if he was impure, though he's the only person who's the true insider. And why did he do that? Why do that? One reason is so that we who are outsiders who don't belong, who are unfaithful, might be able to come inside and become insiders and be loved by God. Are you an insider? Are you on the inside? You can be. It doesn't require a membership card. It doesn't require, in one sense, anything you do at all. You just simply hear this incredible good news of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ, and you trust that He was taken outside the city and crucified on your behalf so that you who deserve to be put outside the city can be brought in and made God's son and God's daughter. And you can come under His Word and be purified and made right and live life the way it's supposed to be lived and then go and turn around and declare the excellencies of His holy name who brought you out of darkness into light and make Him known as the great King that He is. Make sure you're trusting in Him. Let's pray.